This morning we will turn our attention to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. This is part two of a message that I began last week, the faithful ministry of the Holy Spirit, which we see here in these 15 verses of John 16. I'm going to read the text and then we will continue to work through it. Beginning in verse 1, these things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when and he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. In the works of the great Puritan John Owen, we find these words. A man may love another as his own soul, yet his love may not be able to help him. He may pity him in prison, but not relieve him. Bemoan him in misery, but not help him. Suffer with him in trouble, but not ease him. We cannot love grace into a child, nor mercy into a friend. We cannot love them into heaven, though it may be the greatest desire of our soul. But the love of Christ... Being the love of God is effective and fruitful in producing all the good things which he wills for his beloved. He loves life, grace, and holiness into us. He loves us into covenant, loves us into heaven. And it is that capable love of the Lord Jesus Christ that we are seeing manifested to his beloved disciples in in the upper room discourse during his final night before his execution. And it is this love that our hearts need to be drawn to as we see it expressed in this text that we just read. See, Jesus has expressed his love for these men throughout the evening as he prepares them for life without him. As I mentioned last time, these men are on an emotional roller coaster. 
as they are focused on the difficulty that they are about to face and trying to process the reality of what Jesus is saying to them. Persecution is coming, and Jesus is leaving. Those are the words that have stuck to them. Those are the words that have overwhelmed them at this point. And as Jesus is communicating these these difficult things to his disciples, he doesn't leave them without hope. In verses 1 through 15 of this text, out of an enduring love for his own, Jesus encourages his people by disclosing to them the divine, all-sufficient ministry of the Holy Spirit. Out of an enduring love for his own, Jesus encourages his people by disclosing to them the divine, all-sufficient ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we are in the midst of discovering several aspects of the Spirit's ministry, which, which Jesus reveals in these verses. Last time we noted first regarding the Spirit that he prompts courage in the midst of opposition. And we saw that in verses 1 through 4. In those verses, Jesus warned his disciples that that specific persecution was on their heels and that he was sending the helper, the Holy Spirit, to, to enable them to courageously endure what was on the horizon. His purpose, motivated by his love, was that this warning and the enablement of the Holy Spirit would keep them from defection. It would keep them from apostasy. That is what the desire of Jesus was for his disciples. He wanted to keep them from turning their backs on Jesus as he went to the cross. He wanted to keep them from stumbling, as verse 1 says. And the giving of the Spirit, we saw, granted them the courage that they needed to endure the suffering that was ahead. Jesus then disclosed the second aspect of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which was this, that he provides comfort in the midst of sorrow. He provides comfort in the midst of sorrow. As a result of Jesus' clear and specific warning to his disciples in verses 1 through 4, the text tells us that they became overwhelmed with sorrow. Sorrow that stemmed from being self-absorbed and focused on the temporary rather than the eternal. Sorrow that we saw last time which was actually unwarranted. And that becomes clear by Jesus' rebuke of his disciples in verse 5. He says, but now I am going to him who sent me and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things, sorrow has filled your heart. They were consumed with sorrow because of what Jesus said was going to happen to them. And because he wasn't there, going to be there to protect them any longer physically. And they were certainly sorrowful as well because of the reality that Jesus simply wasn't going to be with them anymore. The reality is, is that sorrow overwhelmed them. But we saw that even though they shouldn't have been overwhelmed with sorrow... As Jesus always does, he ministers to them out of merciful love by disclosing that the Spirit's coming is actually better for them than him staying with them personally. 
What incredible words those must have been to these disciples. Certainly confusing, as many of them had come to realize at that moment uh, that this was indeed the Son of God as they had been with him throughout his ministry. But, but those words had to bring a sense of confusion, and they also had to bring a sense of, of comfort. And we talked about the, the primary reasons why it was better for Jesus to leave and the Holy Spirit to come. We saw that this, this enabled the unique New Testament ministry of, of the Holy Spirit and the fact that he came and he is omnipresent. The fact that he is indwelling every single believer on this universe, in, in this, in, on this planet. That he is here with us now as we are gathered together to worship Christ. This was unique. It became this way in, this, in the sense that we, that we experience it today on the day of Pentecost. Jesus poured out his spirit onto the church. This also enabled Jesus then to fully carry out his role as our great high priest in heaven. Yes, Jesus is the divine, all-sufficient Son of God. Fully God, fully man. But his particular ministry that he is focused on now in heaven as our great high priest was enabled by him going away and the Spirit coming. It was to the advantage of the disciples and it is to the advantage of us. Third, we saw that this enabled the disciples and believers down through the centuries to experience the enablement and power of the Holy Spirit to live a life of faith in Christ on earth. The Spirit enabled their faith to really, to really become substantial. As we talked about last time, they went and turned the world upside down after the day of Pentecost, these, these apostles. It was clear, and it is clear to us now that it, it was better for Christ to ascend and for the Holy Spirit to be sent. And Jesus is telling his disciples that very fact in the upper room because of his love for them, because of his, his mercy upon them. Well, this then leads us to a third aspect of the Holy Spirit's ministry that we see revealed in this text, and that is this. Number three, he produces conviction in the midst of the world. He produces conviction in the midst of the world. Look again at verses 8 through 11. And he... Again, speaking of the helper in verse 7, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, and concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. It is clear in these verses that verse 8 functions as a summary statement regarding this aspect of the Holy Spirit's ministry, which then verses 9 through 11 flesh out for our explanation. Verse 8 says, And when He, that is the Helper, the Holy Spirit, comes, referring to after Christ's ascension, when He comes, He will convict the world. This is a primary aspect of the Holy Spirit's ministry since Christ's ascension to heaven. And we see this in full force on the day of Pentecost. As Jesus ascended, then 
40 days later, they gathered in Jerusalem, and the Holy Spirit was poured upon the church as it was birthed. As Peter and the other apostles were preaching, primarily Peter, who we have recorded for us in Acts chapter 2, the conviction of the Holy Spirit was poured out upon these people. Thousands and thousands of people were pierced to the heart, Peter says. It says that his sermon concerning Christ, as he was pointing people to Christ, that the Spirit came and pierced their hearts with conviction, and many came to Christ. This was the initial outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the church. And there were also many signs and wonders that took place. People began to be able to speak in languages that they had never learned for the purpose of communicating the truth of Christ to those who had come from various regions all over the known world at that time. The Holy Spirit came to bring conviction. There are a few different interpretations of this word translated convict in our text. And many commentators are somewhat divided. The better commentators are somewhat united, which is helpful. I think the context and the normal meaning of this word make clear that it means convicting someone of wrongdoing. That's the idea of convict in our text. This is bringing conviction to bear on those who are guilty. And this ministry of the Spirit is simply an extension of Jesus' earthly ministry of conviction. See, as Jesus taught and interacted with people during his time on earth, he always brought the truth to bear on their souls and exposed their sin. You see this time and time again throughout the Gospels as he interacted with folks. And he never left them just out there. Think of the woman at the well in John 4. We studied that a handful of months ago. He converses with her. And it seems like if you're just reading this kind of from an outside perspective, he's shooting the breeze with her, talking to her. And probably shouldn't have been in, in, in their day because of the fact that, that Jewish men didn't speak to Samaritan women. But, but he's doing that. And it was all for a purpose. It was all for a purpose to show her that he was the great I am. And how did he get to that point? Well, he exposed her sin. He said, go call your husband. She said, I have no husband. He's like, you're right. You've had five husbands, and the man you're with right now is not your husband. And in that moment, you see the conviction of the Spirit upon that woman's life. As she kind of steps back, you can just imagine her surprise. Oh, sir, you seem to be some kind of prophet. She was kind of blown away. And then Jesus turns that... into an opportunity to express to her who he was. This is the ministry of Jesus on earth. He always exposed their sin. He always called people to the table. He didn't just leave them out in the midst of their sin. He, He showed it to them. And though on the surface this seems somewhat mean and insensitive if you're looking at this from an outside perspective and you think of the conversations you've had with people when you have that opportunity to call somebody you love to the table because of the sin that they're participating in in their life not a super fun experience right if it is a super fun experience it's kind of weird it's not 
usually doesn't go very well. <clears throat> Sometimes those people want to turn away and don't even want to be your friend anymore. Because in their minds, they're like, well, that's so insensitive. Why are you judging me? The reality is, is that this is incredibly gracious. This is incredibly gracious. It is incredibly gracious. And this is totally outside the point of our text. But it is incredibly gracious for you to confront the people you love in their sin in a kind, gentle way. Because the exposure of sin means that it can be out there and it can be dealt with. And that's what the Spirit does. You see, this conviction that Jesus is telling his disciples about functions as a call to repentance. When there's exposure to sin, then the call to repentance is the natural next step. Right? If there's no exposure to sin, and perhaps you've had this in a you've been in a gospel conversation with somebody. And, and you kind of got stuck and, and you never got to the point where you really exposed sin. You were telling them about Jesus and different things and trying to get some things out there, but never got there and didn't really know where to go after that. Well, if you can get to a point in your conversation with somebody where you're exposing their sin, where you're asking them questions and they're kind of revealing their heart to you, you're exposing their sin. The next natural thing is, see, that sin is an affront to a holy God. And your only response to him in this moment is to repent from that sin, to turn away from that sin, to turn to Christ. That's what conviction does. And that's what this conviction of the Spirit brings. It brings this opportunity to be called to repentance. This conviction describes the nature of sin, the need for righteousness, and the the certainty of judgment, as J.C. Ryle points out, commenting on this text. There are three categories that Jesus gives, each with a reason that follows. You see that in verses 9 through 11. First, the Spirit produces conviction regarding sin. Certainly all sin produces guilt. But the particular sin, the overarching sin that provides the reason here is the world's sin of rejection of Christ and his gospel. This is the ultimate sin. This is the umbrella sin, so to speak. We all commit all kinds of sin, but this sin is the sin that ultimately will get a person cast away from God's presence into hell. It is this final sin, this sin of rejection of Christ, pushing Christ away, pushing his gospel away and saying, I do not believe that. You see, the the world doesn't believe in Jesus. That's what he says concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. They do not believe in Jesus. If a person holds fast to their rejection of Christ and his gospel, they will be judged eternally by God in hell. The world, as Jesus has just described in the previous chapter, hates Jesus and everything that he is about. In fact, this hatred is just a few hours away from culminating in his illegitimate execution. They're about to carry out their hatred in the the fullest sense possible upon Christ. And we see in the New Testament and down through the centuries that this hatred of the world didn't stop with Jesus. But it's continued to be carried out on his followers, beginning with his disciples as many of them were killed as martyrs. 
And you just look at the persecution down through the centuries. The world's hatred of Christ has just continued to be ramped up against those who would follow Christ, those who claim Christ. And it's due to this rejection of Jesus then that the Spirit, who is gracious and merciful, works to produce conviction in the unbelieving soul, exposing their sin to them and their need for Christ. That's who the Spirit is producing conviction in. And those who don't believe. Friends, if you are here in Christ this morning, it is a result of the Holy Spirit graciously bringing conviction upon your soul because of your sin and opening your eyes to the truth found only in Jesus Christ. That's the only reason. It's because of the gracious, merciful ministry of the Holy Spirit to pierce your dark, dead soul. Reveal your sin and fill it with light and hope in the gospel of Christ. That's what he does. It's not a mean and insensitive conviction. This is the gracious, merciful conviction of the Spirit. But it's not only concerning sin. Second, you see that the Spirit produces conviction regarding false righteousness and the need for perfect righteousness. You see that in verse 10 and concerning righteousness. Because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. The world tries to produce its own righteousness to become right with God. We do this. We've done this before you came to Christ. Perhaps you were thinking, I'm going to get to heaven. I go to a good church. I have a good family. I don't kill people. I'm on my way to heaven. And you are trusting in your own righteousness. So this was certainly the reality for the Jews during Jesus' day. They had created this false religion of Judaism where they could work their way into favor with God. <clears throat> during Jesus' ministry, he was continually calling out their self-righteousness and telling them, listen, this work is not good enough. This effort is not good enough. And then declaring to them that he, that Christ was the, the righteousness that they needed, that he was the living water, that he was the bread of life, that he was the one they needed to have their souls consumed with. This is what he did while he was on earth. And now he's telling his disciples that the Spirit is going to empower them to live righteously and to preach righteousness through Christ alone. They're going to get to be an extension of Christ's ministry here on earth and the Spirit is coming to empower them to live out that righteousness and to preach that righteousness that is found in Christ alone. You see, the Spirit graciously convicts the world of its false righteousness and compels them to embrace Christ's perfect righteousness. Again, as a believer here this morning, this is your story. This is your story. Whatever you were trusting in, 
Whatever you were depending upon before Christ, the Spirit supernaturally intervened and convinced you who you were and what you were doing was completely insufficient and that Christ's perfect righteousness alone was the only sufficient thing to get you to heaven. Gracious ministry of the Holy Spirit. But if you are here this morning and you are still trusting in your own righteousness, and I I put it in quotes because that's what the Bible does in Isaiah chapter 64, where Isaiah says that all your righteousness before Christ is as filthy rags before God, that God looks at that and just sees filthy filthiness. It's completely insufficient. So if you're here this morning, for whatever reason, <clears throat> and you are outside of Christ, and you are trusting in, maybe some of those things I just mentioned, trusting in the fact that you attend a good church, trusting in the fact that you have a good family, trusting in the fact that you know a lot of Bible verses, and you think that that righteousness as you see it, is good enough to get you to heaven, is good enough to kind of shade you into heaven as God looks at everybody else and says, oh, this person's kind of with them, so he's good to go. As you do that, you need to understand that you're trying to grasp the wind. (laughs) You're trying to grab a hold of the wind. In other words, what you are doing is absolutely impossible. There is not a single righteous thing that you can do in this life that will earn you favor with God. You cannot live enough righteous days to one day get before the Savior and have him say, enter in to my presence. There's nothing that you can do. You need to, you have to come to grips with the reality that your sin has separated you from a holy God and there is nothing you can do in yourself to ever reconcile that relationship to God. It doesn't matter what you try. You are dead in your sins. You are hostile towards God. You're an enemy of God. God is completely perfect and holy and so anything that comes to him outside of that kind of perfection and holiness is unacceptable in his sight it doesn't matter what righteous thing you're trying to do what righteous thing you're trying to use to to cover up your life and god looks at that it's not gonna work you must come to Jesus alone and embrace his perfect righteousness. The reality that this son of God, the eternal son of God, came and took on flesh and lived perfectly in this life. I don't know about you, but I come back to that reality often. Almost every time I sin. As I come to God and I I confess my sin before God, I am struck with the reality 
that this son of God perfectly lived in my place. That he never sinned in thought, in word, in deed, in motive. And it's because of that perfect righteousness that he was then able to go to the cross and to absorb all of our unrighteousness, all of our sin in his body and pay the penalty for it. Friends, we need to be consumed with the perfection of Christ because it is only the perfection of Christ that gives us any hope of ever being declared righteous before God. We come on our own, we're cast into hell. We come bearing the perfect righteousness of Christ because we've repented of our sin and placed our faith in him alone. We come with that and God judicially declares us righteous because he sees the perfect son of God. It's the Holy Spirit who is the one who graciously convicts the unbelieving world of their need for Christ's righteousness. Third, the Holy Spirit produces conviction concerning judgment. The Holy Spirit's ministry, you see there in verse 11, he says, and concerning judgment, because the rule of this world has been judged. Concerning judgment, it includes exposing the world's false judgment and condemning them for it. This false judgment that is exposed is the kind that condemned the perfect Son of God. You see, the world is characterized by injustice. And that injustice will be judged. Jesus makes that clear because he says, there, at the end of verse 11, the ruler of this world has been judged. The prince of darkness is condemned by Christ. Therefore, all who follow the devil will be judged as well. You see, Satan's sure and final judgment guarantees the final judgment of the unrepentant. And it is the gracious ministry of the Holy Spirit that produces conviction in the world for its false judgment or injustice, which is rebellion against Christ. You see, the world desperately needs to be convicted regarding their rebellion against Christ, or they will suffer eternal separation from Christ in hell what it means when it says that he convicts them of judgment friends hell is real it's not just a figment of our imagination it's not just your worst day on earth it is an actual created place of torment where God will carry out his righteous just wrath upon the unrepentant sinner. It is real and it is waiting for those who reject Christ just as it was for us before we trusted Christ. And Christ, out of love for his own, 
graciously sent his Holy Spirit to convict those who hated him and rejected him and to save them and to reconcile them to the Father. And the Holy Spirit's work to convict concerning sin and and righteousness and judgment, it's, it's absolutely necessary in the heart of a sinner. Listen to these pointed words from a Scottish confession which depict the divine necessity. It says this, he says, We are so dead, so blind, so perverse, that neither can we feel when we are pricked, see the light when it shines, nor assail the will of God when it is revealed, except the Spirit of the Lord Jesus quicken that which is dead, remove the darkness from our minds, and bow our stubborn wills to the obedience of the blessed gospel. The Holy Spirit producing conviction is a loving gift from our Savior, and he was disclosing that to his disciples that night. Listen, the the reality is this, that the Holy Spirit is powerful enough to penetrate the darkest, hardest heart with the truth. And he relentlessly pours out conviction on behalf of those whom Christ purchased. Some of you think about your own testimonies. And you think about the reality that you grew up in the church. You heard the gospel over and over and over. And, and the Bible tells us that when that happens and there's a rejection of the gospel, that, that there's a callousness that produces, that's being produced on the heart. And your heart continually became more hard as you heard the truth over and over. And maybe some of you are in that boat even right now. You, you've heard these things time and time again. Get on with it. Why are we always talking about this? Listen. The Spirit of God is so gracious and so powerful that He penetrates even that dark, calloused heart that has over and over rejected the truth. And He compels, compels that soul to turn to Christ. We rejoice in that. We rejoice in that. Well, This leads us then to a fourth aspect of the Spirit's ministry which we see revealed in this text and that is this, that he promotes Christ in the midst of his followers. He promotes Christ in the midst of his followers. Verse 12, he says, I have many more things to say to you but you cannot bear them now. Notice the compassion of Jesus here as he transitions to disclosing another ministry of the Holy Spirit. He has much more to tell these guys. So much more to say. But he says it has to wait because you can't bear it now. This this is the compassion of Christ on display. He is being patient with his disciples who are not yet fully able to grasp the the full implications of his life and, and his impending death and resurrection. They aren't on the other side of the cross like we are yet. Friends, they're still, they're still waiting for this to unfold. Their, their hearts are turning within them. They're, they're probably full of anxiety, as we see that even in their sorrow. They are, they are anticipating something bad is about to happen. 
And Jesus, in his compassion, he says, I have so much more to tell you. He, he, wants, he wants to pour out his love on them by explaining just the, the fullness of the implications of his life, death, and resurrection. But they're not going to get it. And so he's gracious to wait. What the Spirit is going to continue to reveal about Jesus to the disciples needs to happen after Jesus' departure. He, he's, not, he's not giving them more than they can chew. I've used this illustration before. When, when you have a steak, which is good, which by the way, the other night, my wife and I celebrated 21 years of being married. It was wonderful. And, and we kind of celebrated on my sabbatical, and so just kind of little. I was like, hey, I'll just pick up some steaks and, and grill them. And, and, and I'm, I'm drawn to the large steak. Like I'm looking at it and I'm just drawn to it. And, and, and I have a pretty good track record of being able to pick out a good steak. In fact, this is the first time in my life where I was drawn to this large, delicious looking steak and it turned out to be terrible. I didn't even know how it was even possible. I cooked it. It was you know, almost two inches thick. It was a couple pounds. I know I shouldn't be eating that. My doctor would tell me that too. But it was, it was just right there. Got it off. I knew I'd cooked it right. And I started to get into it. It was like the toughest thing I ever eaten in my life. I was so angry. It's besides the point. You know, when you get a steak, you're not just taking that whole bad boy, right, the whole two-pounder, and putting it in all at once. You're going to choke to death and die. You start trying to push that down. Have you ever tried that? You're trying to, you know, the chubby bunny method. Don't do that with steak. Right? You're, trying to, you're just going after it. You're not doing that. You will die. You will choke to death. The Heimlich will not be sufficient. They will be coming in after you with like a claw to get that meat out of you to try and help you live. You only want to bite off as much as you can chew. That's what Jesus was giving to these disciples. It's that simple bite. That simple bite that they could chew, he wasn't stuffing the whole steak down their throats, even though it would have been good for them. He wasn't doing that. He was giving them a bite at a time because he knew only they could only handle so much. and They weren't far off from being able to comprehend these implications. Right at this point, they were just, just a little over 40 days from beginning to have this, this revelation given to them. We see that in verse 13 is it says, but when the spirit of truth comes, so he says, I'm not going to give this to you now, but when the spirit of truth comes, that is the one who communicates truth, that is the one who bears the truth about Jesus, the one who will continue to reveal the truth about Jesus, when he comes, referring to the day of Pentecost, he will guide you, that is specifically to the disciples, he will guide you into all truth. Listen, people get hung up on this text and start creating all kinds of weird doctrines. This is not referring to new truth, but rather this is truth about Christ already disclosed but not yet fully understood. Right? It's like he's just continuing to pull back the, the curtain. Like the truth is there. The truth exists. It's not new. And he's just continuing to pull back the curtain regarding this truth. The idea of guide here is to help to understand the information fully so that, so that it can be obeyed. Jesus did not disclose everything about himself to his disciples when, when he was on the earth. 
The Holy Spirit then continues to reveal the person of Christ to these disciples. He fills in the details, so to speak. After Christ's death and resurrection and ascension, the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost and he began to reveal to the apostles all of the implications of the truth concerning Jesus. And you see that. We know this to be true. Why? Because they then wrote the New Testament. The New Testament was written by the apostles. And so what Jesus promises there in verse 13, the spirit of truth is coming. He's going to guide you into all the truth. This, this was, this was the, the spirit guiding the disciples. This was the pre-authentication of the New Testament. He was saying this is how it's going to come to be. The truth regarding the full implications of Christ's person and work given by the Holy Spirit resulted in the apostles writing the New Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What an incredible gift. This guiding, here in our text, see that word guide? There in verse 13. This this guiding here is, like I said, specific to the apostles regarding revelation. As God continued to reveal to them the truth that he had disclosed but we reap the benefits through the illumination of the spirit in reference to the revealed scriptures that we hold in our hands right now god's not revealing new truth to us we're not writing new bibles listen i think china's trying to write a new bible that's not going to be true don't read that right there's no new bibles charismatics talking about all this new revelation they're getting mormons talking about the revelation get from the prophet not true What you hold in your hand is the full revelation from God written down by his apostles. You get it. You have it. We have a copy of the the divine revelation of God in our hands and we have the Holy Spirit in our hearts who helps us understand this. That's the implications of this Holy Spirit being given to guide. Because what the Spirit revealed was that which he heard from the Father and the Son. Listen, he doesn't act on his own initiative. That's what it says there in verse 13. He's not going to speak on his own initiative. So we know he's not, he's not coming up with new truth, not some word from the Lord. No, he doesn't write on his own initiative. He wasn't coming up with new stuff. Just as Jesus only spoke what the Father had given him, so the Spirit, Jesus says, only speaks what is given to him from the Father and the Son. Friends, this fact, this reality ensures the unity of the Godhead and it confirms the authenticity of the New Testament. This is one of the the proving factors that the New Testament is from God. It is divine. The way it is described in these words right now. Jesus said he spoke from his Father and the Spirit speaks from the Son and he will disclose it to you when he comes. This is the divine Godhead disclosing truth to the disciples who then write it down. Notice the Spirit's aim in this full disclosure of the implication of Christ's life and death and resurrection. Look at verse 14. He, speaking of the Spirit, will glorify me, it's Christ speaking, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. The central goal of the Holy Spirit is to put Christ on display. Jesus is the focal point of God's revelation 
And the Spirit's main prerogative is to promote Christ. He does this by disclosing the person and work of Christ. That's what he means when he says, for he will take of mine and disclose it to you. He discloses the, the full implications of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Well, we see from, from Christ's ministry, notice in, noted in verse 15, that the Father's aim was to glorify Christ because Christ being glorified brings glory to the Father. The Spirit's aim is then to glorify Christ because glorifying Christ glorifies the Father. This puts the, the glory of the triunity of the Godhead on display. And this then undergirds the consistency of Revelation. This truth of the main prerogative of the Holy Spirit helps us then to discern biblical Christianity from false Christianity. You see, a spirit-led and spirit-empowered ministry is confirmed by one primary thing. That is its exaltation of Jesus Christ. A spirit-led and spirit-empowered ministry is confirmed by its exaltation of of Jesus Christ. This is one of the key reasons why the charismatic movement is, is unbiblical in so many ways. They emphasize the Holy Spirit and, and attribute him with words and works that are not from Christ and that are not from the scriptures. And this is what leads to the assault of the Holy Spirit. Listen, the Spirit is most exalted and worshipped when Christ is most exalted and worshipped. When we adore Christ, we adore the Holy Spirit. His primary role is to promote Christ among his people, among his followers. We worship the triune God. And the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is most glorified when the person and work of Jesus Christ are on full display. It's the Spirit's ministry. He points us to Christ. So we sing of Christ. We think of Christ. We speak of Christ. We exalt Christ. When Christ is exalted, the Godhead is exalted. The Father is exalted. The Spirit's exalted. What a glorious, gracious gift Christ has given us in the Holy Spirit to point us to the glorious Son of God. What an expression of enduring love. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for our time. Thank you for your word. Father, so much more could be said these verses there's so much here but Lord I pray that the the overall truth of this text is confirmed upon our hearts by your spirit the spirit's work of conviction the spirit's work to promote Christ Father thank you for the unity of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. Thank you that you have given us your word. You have revealed to us the truth concerning yourself. 
Thank you for making it clear. Thank you that it is not nuanced. Thank you that it is authoritative. Thank you for this expression of love that was carried out by Christ to his disciples that night. And certainly, Father, by extension to us as we see now this glorious ministry of the Holy Spirit that has unfolded since the Lord Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Father, may our hearts be consumed by Christ, that we love him and serve him and obey him. In his name, amen.